welcome to a podcast from ICF and disaster management and our public health community about COVID-19 and what's happening to the emergency management and medical community and how to address the challenges that are facing them when it comes to a number of issues. First of all, public assistance that is available from the Federal Emergency Management Agency under uh, the Stafford Disaster Relief Act. We'll also discuss a little bit about the public health community and the hospitals and the HHS programs that are being put in place now to support them. There will be a series of podcasts uh, ranging on a number of different subjects beyond public assistance from FEMA to include uh, more public health information and HHS activities, uh, individual assistance under a major disaster declaration that many states have received already, uh, mitigation opportunities that are ma made available by the funding of the federal government through the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief Act, as well as continuity of operations, both for government and business. So this series of podcasts, uh, which we are pulling together over the next several days and weeks, hopefully will prepare both federal, state, and local clients of ICF, uh, those that are interested in these subjects, and the public in some ways to get a better understanding of what your emergency management officials and public health officials are doing to address these challenges and to make sure that they're maximizing the available federal dollars that are coming to them in order to support both the COVID-19 response, the recovery, and long-term mitigation against future outbreaks. COVID-19 has certainly placed a tremendous stress on the United States, uh, the public health community, and a new stress on emergency management officials who traditionally may be used to things like hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, uh, as well as terrorism events. But in this case, we're looking at a public health emergency, which has relatively broader, but also new implications to how the funding is managed, how reimbursement is tracked. And we wanted to give you an opportunity to understand a little bit more in depth about what some of those challenges are how state and local governments should be tracking costs, how they should understand what's eligible and what's not eligible in a program that is evolving. The Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief Act under the public assistance program specifically has a number of eligible activities, some of which are not gonna be relevant to COVID-19, others which are very relevant. And one of the things that is important to understand is how flexible state and local governments can be uh, and how the program is being flexed to be able to account for costs that may not have ever been paid for under these programs in the past, but are still eligible activities. As we learn more, we'll share more with you. I have two experts with me today uh, who have spent many, many years in emergency management. Uh, I have 35 years in emergency management at the local, state, and federal level, including being the former director of policy at FEMA and a deputy director. Uh, and I have also with me Martin Altman. Marty is a 40-year emergency manager, has worked at all levels of government and the private sector, and has been involved with countless disasters in his career and is a public assistance expert. And I also have with us Megan Trevor. Megan was a former paramedic, public health official, both at the state level and local level and has been involved in emergency management preparedness also for many years. And I'll spend a little bit of time as I introduce them, giving you a little bit more about their background. 
But first, we'd like to start about what's happening in the public health community, the hospitals, and what HHS is thinking about right now, and pre-staging a little bit what we think will be coming down the road uh, with Megan. Uh, Megan Trevor, as I said, is a longtime public health official, uh, paramedic, emergency official, and has been involved for many years with both the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and leads our public health and national resilience uh, activities here at ICF. Megan, welcome. And if you could give us a little bit about what you're seeing from the work that we're doing to support HHS, but more importantly, uh, what you're seeing around the medical and public health community with regards to COVID-19 and how this funding from the federal government is, is looking like it's going to start to shake out. Absolutely, thanks, Marco. So. This is a virus and a, and a disease that we haven't had a lot of time with. The novel coronavirus was first identified in Wuhan, China in the November-December timeframe in late 2019. First case was confirmed in the United States on January 21st. The World Health Organization declared SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 disease, on March 11th. So that's not a lot of time, even though it feels like it's been the longest year we've experienced these last three months. The Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services declared the novel coronavirus a public health emergency on January 31st, and the President made dual National Emergency Act and Stafford Act declarations on March 13th. These HHS and presidential declarations provide certain regulatory relief for hospitals and healthcare entities across the country, which was absolutely necessary and makes funding available to states from the Disaster Relief Fund. In addition to those funds, separate supplemental funding provided to HHS by Congress is also being made available through funding opportunities from the CDC and from the Assistant Secretary from Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, through their existing Public Health Emergency Preparedness and Hospital Preparedness Program Cooperative Agreements. Final funding opportunity announcements are still being developed and state health departments and state emergency management agencies will need to work together closely to review applications for the use of public assistance funding to ensure there's no duplication of coverage between all available funding sources. At this point, applications for funding and requests for federal assistance in this disaster are being handled exactly as they would be for any other disaster or emergency where FEMA has activated the national response framework and those associated coordinating structures. So requests from healthcare facilities should be routed through their local emergency management agencies, through those health and medical or emergency support function eight desks, and then up to the state emergency management agency. Federal officials and clinicians across the country are still working to develop pandemic surge strategies to meet the needs of communities that are facing potential waves of patients. Just for some perspective, as of this morning, there are 142,037 cases of COVID-19 in the United States with 2,415 deaths. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. Thanks, Megan. I appreciate it. One of the things that's important, especially for our viewers and listeners, is to understand that all of the information that we're presenting today and in future podcasts will be available on ICF's website at www.icf.com. 
and we will have a number of materials that will be available for you to view and also uh, additional podcast information as it develops. Uh, there'll also be links to some of our federal partners that are putting out information on a regular basis. Megan, one of the questions that I think uh, a lot of both emergency management officials as well as hospital officials are going to have are what are some of the things that they should be thinking about in terms of what kind of costs should they be tracking from a hospital perspective and a medical perspective um, that are potentially eligible for uh, the public assistance program, but more importantly, all of the funding that's available. Right. So I think the first, um, the, the very first step is to, to track all of your costs and then figure out later what can get reimbursed by where, but tracking all of your costs, overtime, staffing, equipment purchases, supply purchases, everything that you are spending needs to be tracked. And so the, the most, I think the most effective way is for state emergency management agencies to communicate early now with healthcare facilities clearly about how you want them to track their costs, what process you'd like them to, to use, if there's any specific um, a paperwork or processes, because this process is new to, to many of these healthcare facilities. Every state has a, uh, depends on the state how they're, how they're named, but every state has a hospital or a health system association, um, and they have a state health department. Use those entities to help reach out to your hospitals now as tracking early and properly will save everybody time and frustration later on. Also, the hospital associations and the state health departments are cooperative agreement recipients from HHS. So coordinating now and coordinating early with these entities can ensure there's no supplementation or overlap of funding requests and, and unmet need requests. And um, there's also the added benefit that if you coordinate now on funding, it can also help you coordinate better on those un unmet needs requirements and requests that are going to come through the exact same process. Um, hospital incident command systems are structured very similarly to traditional ICS systems, so they have administrative and financial units there to track, and they're set up to track these. As you look at what hospitals are, are doing, but more importantly, even the uh, broader community in the health uh, world with regards to medical supply chain and some of the costs that are uh, associated with that, what is HHS contemplating uh, in, in their support of both the supply chain as well as um, how some of this funding is going to get used to help uh, augment the delivery of critical supplies? Yeah, um, so we're still waiting for a little bit of clarity uh, from exactly for exactly what is going to be covered by different funding streams. But at the moment, HHS follows their existing process. So they work directly with state health departments to release resources from uh, the strategic national stockpile or their other vendor managed inventories. So they are, um, despite the pandemic situation that we're in, still following normal disaster processes to request um, to request and release supplies. So that's still your best option is to request what you need um, in very specific terms and then um, see what, you know, see what would be available and, and which is the best source to to fulfill that needs, and that's all being coordinated uh, at the federal level between HHS and FEMA. Obviously, as COVID-19 is stressing hospitals and stressing emergency rooms and the ability uh, for folks to be able to uh, quarantine uh, under medical care, um, 
one of the things that I know has been talked about in the public health preparedness community for years and has also been part of the national uh, preparedness plans for biodefense uh, include the ability uh, and the need potentially to set up alternative medical care sites. Uh, obviously, we are getting to the point where hospitals are getting starting to feel stressed. I don't think that's going to end any time in the near future. Uh, what are some of the things that state and local governments should be thinking about when it comes to uh, working with their, their public health and their, their medical community to try to determine what alternate sites uh, or what alternate capabilities might be brought to bear? So many states have uh, have been working for years on building their own inherent capabilities for alternate sites, community surge sites. Um, everybody has a slightly different name depending on how they've structured them. Um, we know that HHS and the, um, the federal interagency are, are working on alternate care site strategies. The, the best, again, not to um, not to say the same thing over again, but your best option is to reach out um, to your local emergency management agencies, to your state emergency management agencies, who can then connect you to the regional uh, HHS representatives and re regional FEMA representatives so that they can meet your need um, very directly, as opposed to asking for a specific um, for a specific resource, um, it's best to explain the need that you have, and then you can work together to figure out what the best what the best resource match is. It's not always um, a plug and play resource. It might be a um, it might be a, a combination of of resources available. It it might be just technical assistance to figure out how to surge within your facilities, because ultimately your your best options are to um, take care of patients inside a hospital. So whatever we can do to surge and increase your capacity and capability inside the walls of a existing facility is your is your best option. Um, once there is a need for some sort of a, an alternate care site or community surge, communicating that need, and then everybody along the line understands the, the surge and the stress that you're under and can see what can be done to support you. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate it. We'll come back to you here in a couple of minutes. Again, for our listeners and our viewers, uh, we are all working remotely here at ICF at all of our offices. Our folks are at home. Our folks are with our clients where appropriate and taking steps to not only social distance, but also to continue to be able to work in this environment. That's why this podcast, occasionally you may see some glitches in technology. Uh, we are learning just as you are learning how to deal with environment where thankfully the electronics we have today allow us to communicate far more easily than they have in the past. I'd like to bring in uh, Marty Altman now. Marty is uh, over 40 years in emergency management, uh, worked at FEMA, has worked at state and uh, local levels, and has been supporting as a vice president of our recovery work uh, for a number of years and as a public assistance uh, leader in the field. Marty, welcome and thank you for joining us this morning. I think one of the first questions that um, comes to mind for anybody who under, uh, is, is involved in this process now is the entire nation has received uh, a uh, emergency declaration under the Stafford Act by the President of the United States. Many states, uh, about a dozen or so and more I'm sure to follow, have received major declarations. Each one of those designations brings a different aspect to um, the equation when it comes to the relief programs that are available. Under the emergency declaration process, public assistance for emergency protective measures is made eligible, which uh, we 
commonly referred to as Category B. Uh, Category B is all of those life-saving activities um, that take place that government uh, manages at all levels of government. As we look at Category B, and we'll certainly talk about the major declaration process later, uh, Category B, what are some of the significant items that uh, and things that the state and local governments should really be watching closely now, tracking costs on when it comes to emergency protective measures. Yeah, well, th thanks, Marco. And uh, with, with what's happened, this is an unprecedented event and things are changing by the day, and especially with what uh, FEMA is going to allow as far as what reimbursements are. The initial emergency declaration that came out that all states received one uh, from the president is was focused on working with the healthcare industry and the hospitals in order to provide funding mechanism to reimburse them for costs that are going to be in abundance of what they need. Such things as working with, you know, as Megan mentioned previously, you know, with setting up the emergency operation centers, uh, training uh, for the declared event, because they're going to be bringing a lot of different resources in. And some of those folks may need to be trained, especially when it gets into the processes of decontamination. You know, those costs are all reimbursable by this uh, declaration, as well as uh, putting disinfection and, and cleaning up facilities in order to expand their operation uh, with, within the system. And then the me emergency medical care uh, position with, with everything, uh, which is a non-deferrable uh, treatment of the infected person into a shelter or a temporary shelter. Like we see it's going on everywhere. You know, it, take, take New York, for example. New York has had a tremendous amount of patient care that needs to be taken. The hospitals are being overcome by patients. And so they have to find out other resources in order to put medical facilities in, a temporary facility. So all those costs are reimbursable. And then what happened over, over a period of time was we went into uh, looking at the cost, you know, for supplies and, and, and labor, the, the, the employment uh, that comes on. And one of the key things is this is a 75-25 disaster right now, 75% uh, federal share. And what's happening also is there's a lot of volunteers coming out and helping, you know, from different aspects of the response recovery. And a key thing to that is to be able to track each and every one of those individuals and what they're doing and by the name and, and the tasks that they were at, because that will help the locals to offset their 25% cost share. You know, we have to focus on that at this period of time, too, because, you know, this is an unprecedented event. And we know the millions and billions of dollars it's going to cost throughout this whole incident. And, and for 25% for a local match share, it, it can uh, devastate some of the, the budgets. And so it, it's critical to find ways and understand what is eligible, what isn't eligible, so that these funds can maximize whatever they have in place. One of the things FEMA has recently done, uh, they put out uh, last week, is, is they're looking at what they're calling the simplified application process. And, and that process is what FEMA did was eliminate some of the things that's a bottleneck when it comes to uh, applying for reimbursement. Uh, such things that they're eliminating in this whole process, everything's going to be done online, but they're eliminating the exploratory calls they have, 
uh, their recovery scoping meetings and uh, even doing site inspections because, uh, you know, we, we can't get near a lot of people, as well as reducing the documentation requirements to minim minimize the, the needed support in order to receive the funding quickly. Uh, FEMA's uh, put out there that what they're looking to be able to do is once this information is uploaded and the proper uh, messaging with it, you know, the documentation supports these costs, they will expedite those funds to the locals, which is going to be a critical thing uh, for, for the locals in order to survive. It, we don't know how long this is going to be. So the emergency protective measures was strictly in the beginning was helping the medical industry, you know, the medical field, the hospitals, the healthcare institution, uh, and the local emergency response responders to this incident. Um, and it helps uh, offset a lot of those costs and everything else. It's a very complex process, even though FEMA is going to reduce some of the documentation and everything else. If you do not document and track everything the way it needs to be, you, you can jeopardize the opportunity to receive in those funds. There is going to be multiple funding sources. So just as Megan says, you know, you have to track everything. Track, it doesn't matter what you're doing, if it's relating to the COVID-19 virus response, you want to track everything, no matter what it is. It, it's, it's labor, it's equipment, it's supplies, it's uh, donated resources, everything has taken place. And in the end, yes, it's going to be complex in order to separate who's paying, what bucket is that funding coming from? So the better you document that and track that, the better off you're going to be. Thanks, Marty. One of the things that certainly is important with this is if states that have received the ma uh, a major declaration are also going to be eligible potentially for other categories of public assistance beyond uh, just Category B, uh, we will probably do a podcast specifically on the other categories because it can be complicated when you're talking about infrastructure costs as opposed to emergency costs. But one of the things on the emergency cost side that is important uh, to kind of tease out is beyond the application being simplified, uh, normally when we think of emergency costs for uh, category B, we think, we think in terms of police and fire overtime, uh, those things like emergency medical services overtime, not normal operations. Uh, how do we make sure and how do our state and local clients and, and governments think in terms of how to make sure they understand how they're tracking those costs from the perspective of what is a normal operational duty versus what is eligible under COVID-19's declaration process? The easiest way uh, to, to track that is by tracking everything, no matter what time goes in and everything else, looking at their timesheets, how they're tracking their time, how's their payroll policies line up. But my advice to everybody is track. If it's somebody working their daytime hours right now, track everything and let's sort it out after the event in order to make sure you can get reimbursed for what you can. Because it can become complex and some, some of the... Uh, uh, applicants that has different payroll policies. Uh, you got to know the language that's in that and how it's going to be able to be applied for this. And then on top of it, we don't know what's going to happen as this event continues to go on because 
FEMA could come out and say, we're going to do something completely different. And, and maybe, you know, there's a possibility that they'll, they'll cover everything because of the economic impact it's having on communities right now. So the best advice is track every single hour somebody's working and then make sure you track what you paid them and what your payroll time is and, and the tasks that they did. You just can't say, uh, for an example, Marco punched a clock today to put his daily work in. That was it. Okay, but what did he do and how does it re impact and what the task he did that relates to this disaster and to this event? Because that's going to be a key thing to it. And Megan, I would assume that uh, for the purposes of the uh, healthcare community, the same kind of rules would apply to them in terms of tracking their time also. Yeah, it's the same rules. And I can I can tell you um, anecdotally from my time at the state, one of the things that we did was to create um, in the back end of our financial systems, a, a separate charge code. Um, that was the easiest and fastest way for us to be able to track how and who was spending um, time on what. Uh, and so we, we uh, everything was everything was tracked, uh, equipment purchases, labor, um, supplies, everything was just coded with that um, with that code. We also did have to provide um, some regular accounting of what our at least our grant funded, our cooperative agreement funded staff were working on. Um, and so those those uh, administrative controls were already in place. So that would apply to the hospitals as well to 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 try and um, assign separate separate charge codes or put a checkbox or whatever whatever control you have in your in your accounting systems that makes it uh, just as easy as possible. And for both of you, actually, and, and I'm sure there's two different uh, uh, there's two different perspectives on this with the public assistance program uh, and this disaster relief funding. There are certain um, entities that are eligible and there are some that are not eligible and there are some that, well, they fall in that middle ground area. The difference between a governmental activity like a local government of fire, police, EMS department or uh, in the cases of um, private nonprofits, there's they're eligible under public assistance and specifically many hospitals uh, are nonprofit entities uh, or they are uh, utilities in many ways or they're community owned. Uh, but then some are also privately owned as well. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between um, the, the private, purely private for profits and the nonprofits and how that plays into some of this relief? Sure, I'll, 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 take, I'll take that first step with this is um, with FEMA public assistance program is that you have to be an eligible applicant and you have to be a, a not for profit organization. And there's also when you get into the uh, not for profits, there's critical facilities and there's non critical facilities. And with with the declaration, it has to be with, with the critical facilities, you know, that 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 can apply for the funding. FEMA will not reimburse a private entity or an applicant uh, for funding because they figure in the process that's what they got their budgets for in order to do that. And so if it's for profit, it's not eligible under the FEMA public assistance program. Not saying we may not see a different change with this event because as big as it is, but that's where we have to rely on the other funding sources as well to see where they fall in line with that, you know, with HHS, um, uh, the uh, CDC and whatever funding else is going to come out with what was passed in the recent uh, bill uh, the Senate passed last week. Uh, there's funding in there. 
even though it's very discerning that a little bit of money they put in there for for the uh, health in, health care uh, institute it's very little for all the many resources they got to put out there so but those are the things we got to look at but you know some of the things with going from the original emergency declaration to the major declaration that the president put out for uh, I think it's up around 15 right now um, is it opens that window of opportunity for a lot more applicants to be able to apply for category B it hasn't opened up the door for all categories it's still strictly a major direct declaration for category B and so what that does is add a lot more applicants that can apply for the the funding such as your all your critical facilities which is going to include your utilities and you brought that up uh, because in part of that you know if they're tracking their activities it, it's strictly related to this event it could be eligible okay uh, educational institutions you know that where where schools are being shut down or if they're purchasing equipment in order for students to be able to work at home you know those costs are reimbursable but there is some things that ties into that and how it has to look at when the event's over uh, but it's opening those doorways up for additional uh, opportunities for the local entities that can apply for this funding um, but again you know if it's a for-profit organization they're ineligible at this time to uh, apply for FEMA funding. Megan, just to kind of build on that a little bit, we know that the uh, relief bill has uh, passed the first of what will likely be several. Uh, of course, a tremendous amount of funding in it, uh, some of which will be going to replenish the disaster relief fund at FEMA to fund a lot of these emergency protective measures, whether they be hospital-based or government-based. Uh, secondly, there's a tremendous amount of money, I believe, in there for research and for supply chain activities as well. How do you envision or where do you see this at this point and moving forward and um, how that money is going to be utilized in the short term? And, and where do you think uh, HHS and, uh, and others will, will start to really focus their energies beyond um, the containment of this at this point? Sure. I, I think so. I think containment, as you mentioned right now, and, and mitigation and management of the um, spread of the disease is certainly the focus. Um, I think managing patient care is HHS's focus. Uh, so focusing on um, supplies and equipment, um, getting those packages uh, out to the states of, of whatever it is they're asking for. If it's, if it's personal protective equipment, if it's medical supplies, if it's packages of alternate care sites, if it's staffing, um, HHS does have some funding <clears throat> that will be pushed out to the states and to the hospitals through a couple of different mechanisms that I talked about earlier through the um, public health emergency preparedness cooperative agreement and through the hospital preparedness program cooperative agreement we're still waiting on some specific language and um, specific guidance for how that's going to go out but that funding doesn't have the same restrictions that FEMA's funding does so uh, private hospitals and healthcare entities can um, re be recipients of that funding uh, it just depends on on how the state is envisioning that they will um, execute those funds 
Marty, one of the things that is important, I think, Megan, this will be true for the uh, the public health side of this, is the 75-25 federal and non-federal match. And, and when we say non-federal match, uh, that actually has some pretty broad parameters based on the state people are in. In some cases, some states will pay the full 25% out of state funds. In other cases, it's passed entirely to the local governments and in some cases shared. Uh, Given that, uh, I, I'm assuming we're going to encourage certainly our clients to understand the rules that their state is operating under. Uh, but more importantly, how can creative ways be developed and thought of in terms of how to meet that cost share match? You mentioned a couple up front. Um, again, you know, the biggest part of it is, is, is to meet that match. What is the cost that they put out locally with, with the, the entity, you know, again, donated resources, such as it could be materials or supplies coming in. It could be the labor force coming in. It could be uh, donating uh, other things that's needed for the, the disaster itself. Or if a local uh, entity, they've done this before in the past, and, you know, they would take some of their, their own time and everything else within their jurisdiction and apply it to that where they wouldn't charge for you before but they'll tie it and say okay we're going to dedicate this much toward federal cost share uh there is states that do split this cost share uh florida is one of them they've split it 50 50. Uh, new york uh it just depends on and i think what we're going to see in new york it'll be 100 percent you know the state will pick up the cost share that's what he's he's uh talking about right now that uh those are the things that they can do. It's 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 that's why it's critical, and I can't say this enough. You got to document everything, everything you're doing toward this event, and then you know, like we're going to tell our clients, we're going to sit down with them and help help them sort through what is the funding sources out there, where can this be applied to, how can we offset what's coming out of their pocket and what they donated to those resources. You talked a little bit about donated services and donated uh, activities of both people and material. Um, how does insurance play into this as well? well I was just going to go there. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> it, it's understanding your insurance policies because understanding with the FEMA Public Assistance Program or any program, you, you can't have duplicated benefits. And you have to understand what's in your insurance policy because there could be in the insurance policy to pick up a lot of some of this cost as well. I think that's what makes it difficult when you start looking at your uh, healthcare facilities and everything else and what's in their insurance policies. Megan might be able to touch a little more on that. But one of the things FEMA is going to do, they're going to request their insurance policy so they could see what coverage is, is inside of that insurance policy. And whatever it is, they're going to deduct it off the cost of the eligible cost that they come up with for what they're submitting to FEMA for reimbursement. And this disaster, yeah, this disaster is a little different, right? So in your in your sort of, I hate to say the word typical, but in previous disasters that we have the most experience with, like natural disasters, um, there is typically insurance coverage for this. I, I think I think we'll be hard pressed to find widespread insurance coverage for pandemic costs. I think this is one of those um, uh, act of God. Um, and force majeure sort of uh, clauses that you'll see in insurance, but they're going to want to look at it anyways. Mm -hmm. And in terms of medical costs, um, this is this is a, a difficult situation because there are um, there's costs that 
for activities that advance and, un, and not directly related to the cost of providing medical care. But then there are treatment costs. This is an expensive disease to manage for patients who are admitted to the hospital. And um, FEMA covers uh, a small portion of that potentially in their in emergency medical costs. So potentially emergency department visits, but once a patient is admitted or put someplace else, that's, that's ineligible. Um, HHS funding at this point does not cover any costs of, of um, and I'm, by HHS funding, I mean specifically the cooperative agreement funding. Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or Medicaid and Medicare, will pay some of these costs for their insured, um, and then private insurance will, will kick in for those that have private insurance. But this is going to be a difficult process for um, hospitals and healthcare facilities to muddle through in figuring out uh, who will pay and how, and how it will get paid, and those will be trailing costs because you'll... Um, as I said, the HHS cooperative agreement funding will pay for it, um, and FEMA is a payer of last resort. So you'll need to, they'll need to see documentation of, of um, companies first. So again, sitting down and having your documentation and being very clear about what costs are going to what payer uh, is going to be, is going to be critical, and it's going to take a while to, to weed through that for healthcare facilities. Megan, if you had advice to give to both the public health community and its relationship with the emergency management community at large, uh, especially when it comes to understanding um, how this funding shakes out, how some of these programs operate, you mentioned before about getting with them early. Uh, what do you think is the best advice that um, state and locals really need to understand, given this is something they have not traditionally done right. in the past? Right. Um, I, the, 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 gui the guidance, the advice still stands. Talk to, um, talk to everybody early. I know everybody is incredibly busy. If you are in one of the states that um, is actively managing patients now versus um, preparing for patients to come, um, finding the time to have that conversation is going to be difficult, but it needs to happen. So um, the states at the, at, in the emergency management agencies and in the health departments and at the hospital associations should talk with their uh, respective federal representatives. So FEMA has grant, ha, has representatives that can talk about public assistance and the um, disaster relief funding opportunities. HHS has uh, federal project officers and regional emergency coordinators in every <clears throat> excuse me in every FEMA region that can address eligible costs and the process for applications. Um, get that information early and push that down to your potential recipients within your state. Um, the earlier that you can have those conversations, you can hear the pain points, um, the better you are going to be prepared. Marty, where can state and local governments go to get help? Uh, they're, they're, the key place for them to get help is, is going to the state emergency management offices. You know, they, they have a relationship with FEMA and their federal partners that can help guide that. But also, you know, there's other uh, field expertise uh, individuals out there that can help guide them through this whole process. Um, it is a complicated process right now, you know, and nobody knows where it's gonna end up. But they just as like Megan said, they need to get those conversations going early because if they wait too late, it, it, it could create them a bigger problem in the end. I do know currently there's a couple of the states that's starting out putting uh, webinars together for the public assistance program and, and identifying what is eligible and what isn't eligible. Um, and 
it, it's they need to partake in all that and they can have a true understanding of what FEMA is going to pay for, you know, as the event goes on. But they need to reach out, you know, because as complicated as this is, they need to reach out to make sure they follow the line, follow dot every I and cross every T. The biggest problem that there is with the FEMA Public Assistance Program or any program is if it's not documented right, you'll lose that opportunity. So if you don't understand something, ask. Find the expertise in order to get your questions answered. That's the critical point right now. And I can see it already starting uh, to develop out there where we're getting calls about, you know, what can we do? We don't understand with this new disaster, this unprecedented event. How can we manage this? You know, so that might be the key thing too. But the key is to communicate, communicate, and communicate, and document, document, and document. Marty, you certainly have touched on it. You know, ICF has been involved with the uh, disaster emergency management public health community for almost thirty years or more now. Uh, what are what's ICF doing to to really be prepared itself, and more importantly, how we're helping our clients? We we are doing uh, a, a couple of different things. We're reaching out to our clients uh, for one thing to ask them, you know, how can we assist them to understand the process and what can we do to help them through and help them to maximize their opportunities. The other thing is we we put together a group that we're putting online that has all the updated information and documentation that it would be giving them advice on what's going to happen. Okay, with with every part of the the response. But we're here, and, and, and with this podcast that's going to be up uh, shortly, uh, it's going to help guide them to where to go with ICF.com, where to look for this information. Uh, we are reaching out to key entities, you know, key potential entities to see what they need to help them get through this, this stage. we got to look at the, the, the most critical right now to where that help needs to be. And as it grows and expands, then we reach out that way as well. Um, so we are doing a lot. We're educating our clients and having them have an understanding of what's there. At the same time, the clients are calling us for advice on how to document certain things. And Megan, from a uh, ICS public health perspective, obviously we're doing things within the company to take care of our own employees and to make sure that they're taking care of their families uh, and practicing all of the guidance uh, with regards to uh, being safe and trying to make sure that we minimize the spread. Uh, but we're also supporting our public health uh, community as well, both through um, our work in the federal government and elsewhere. Um, from your perspective on the public health side, uh, what is ICF doing and what more can we uh, be sharing with our uh, our public health community clients? Sure. So we are, as you said, we are supporting our existing clients and uh, we have federal and and um, and state and private sector clients that we're assisting in uh, preparedness and planning and um, at, for both their public facing responsibilities and their internal uh, continuity of operations planning and their internal social distancing like we are doing at ICF. Um, I think that, as Marty said, um, we're continuing to, to, to get guidance as, as we find it and push it out as quickly as we can um, so that we can just keep those lines of communication and keep any information that's flowing as it's flowing uh, up and down the chain to, to our clients and out to the, to the public in general. I think one of the things that's important um, for all who are listening or watching today is to understand that 
the information we're providing today is accurate and to our best of our ability based on the current status of both the response and the declarations. As things continue to evolve, there will be additional information. Things may change, uh, but largely the basis of these programs is fairly uh, well set, but there may be, as there are in any disasters, uh, nuances sure. and changes of actions that may come. And we will try to share with those with you um, okay. as quickly as we determine them. And I, I you know, wanted to, uh, uh, to let you folks know that as we evolve these, uh, uh, both these podcasts and our documentation material that we make available. Uh, those are the kind of things where we'll try to insert as much of the latest that we understand and we've learned and point you to the authoritative sources um, that really understand. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there, uh, and there is a lot of work being done by a number of people. And we are, I think it's probably also important to mention that we are, you know, our, our advice and our experience is, is based on our previous responses. I know I, I, I played a role and um, led um, my organization through the H1N1 pandemic, but that isn't this. And we have not experienced this kind of an event before. We've been planning for it for 20 plus years. I think we also, you know, just to be clear that we are, we're speaking from that experience from our, our very, you know, as, as Margo read our bios, our, our, our many, many, many years of experience, but we're not speaking on behalf of our clients at all. Um, so we are, this is, this is our opinion. This is ICF's opinion. This is our interpretation of events as they are unfolding now. And, and we're not at all in any way speaking for any of the agencies that we mentioned today. Well put. Uh, Marty, any last words? No, just, uh, just, you know, uh, Megan said it very clear and, and, and precisely, you know, this is a new event. You know, it, it's, it's something that nobody's ever been through before. This is something that's impacting the whole country. It's not just a local where, like you mentioned in the beginning, Marco, you're typically responding to hurricanes, tornadoes, or minor uh, pandemic uh, incidents. And this is something that's it's capturing everybody. It's not only in this nation here, but it's across the globe. You know, it's huge. You know, uh, one of the best advice I could give right now to anybody who's listened to this podcast is as you are engaging yourself into this event, make sure one, you keep safe. That's the most critical thing. But the second thing is make sure you understand what you need to do to ensure yourself that you're going to get reimbursed or have backup of some way to recoup those costs, no matter what funding sources there are, and uh, work together in a community to make a safe community. We'll get through this. It's just thank a matter you, of when. Certainly appreciate that. And for all of you, we want to thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, there will be uh, several other podcasts that are in the planning stages now. We will air them as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, and to further uh, provide a little bit of information, certainly around the public assistance program with regards to the additional categories, the individual assistance program, uh, which has been opened up for states that have received a major disaster declaration, creates additional opportunities, not just for governments, but quite frankly, for individual citizens to obtain certain services and certain relief that they might not otherwise get uh, in the normal course of the day. Uh, and finally, we'll also be working on longer-term mitigation strategies that'll be 
uh, funded by uh, the results of, of this funding. And ultimately, uh, we'll also do a podcast on continuity. Continuity of operations during an event like this have become a critical issue for a number of uh, not only communities, but businesses, as well as uh, utilities and other governmental services manufacturing that are affected by labor shortage because folks have to stay at home or they're labor-based uh, and social distancing doesn't allow that to continue. We'll talk a little bit about what it means to plan for that on future podcasts. Needless to say, ICF will uh, continue to provide information as we have it, as we make it, can make it available. We'll do the podcast uh, continuing on many of these subjects and, and others. And we invite your feedback. We invite your ideas, uh, your questions. And certainly, uh, if there are topics that we should be covering that are related to COVID-19, uh, we will certainly take a look at those as well. On behalf of ICF, uh, remember, please go to our website, www.icf.com. There will be a link to all of the COVID-19 information that the firm has made available, both to our public uh, facing uh, folks as well as our clients. Uh, and we look forward to being able to support and serve you in the future. Uh, stay safe, uh, stay at home, and uh, let's all get through this together. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today. And thank you to all of you who've been watching and listening. Thank you.